The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Okay, here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So there's a tendency in people to think if they only lived in a super cool place, their lives would be infinitely better. And while it's true that geography can influence our well-being, we often vastly overestimate how much moving will actually improve our lives. I mean, if you're miserable in one city, you're probably going to be miserable somewhere else. There's truth to the adage, wherever you go, there you are. And let's face it, we often don't have complete control over where we live due to jobs, family obligations, and other factors. So how can you learn to love the place you live, even if you don't feel it's the place of your dreams or the most ideal location? My guest today has spent a year researching the burgeoning science of what's called place attachment in order to answer that question. Her name is Melody Warnick, and she's the author of the book, This Is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live. And on to the show today, Melody and I discuss what place attachment is and what you can do to have more of it for the place you live. It's a great podcast filled with some extremely actionable advice. After the show, check out the show notes at awim.is slash place, where you can find uh, links to resources you can delve deeper into this topic. All right, Melody Warnick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So your new book is called, This is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live. I'm curious, what got you started down this path exploring the science of loving the place you are? For me, it was what happens to a lot of Americans. I was moving a lot. Um, I moved six times among five different states in 12 years, which I know for some people is just a drop in the bucket. But it was my latest move uh, to Blacksburg, Virginia, that really made me want to delve into this. Um, My family had lived in Austin, Texas for a couple of years and really thought, oh, this is going to be the place. We're going to stay here forever. And then after a couple of years, it just didn't quite feel right. And my husband got a new job offer at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. And we moved again. Um, And every time we moved, we would have these high hopes that this new town would somehow magically solve all our problems and make us better people and make us happier. And when we moved to Blacksburg, it was kind of this realization, again, that that doesn't always happen. That doesn't usually happen. Um, And I needed to figure out a way to be happy where I was right now instead of waiting for the next town or the best town. 
Right. Yeah. I, th- I think there's this tendency in all of us thing that, oh, if, if only we lived someplace we love, sounds like the coolest place ever, someplace different, our lives would just magically be better. I like how in your book, your friend calls this the, the geographic cure. Um, is there any truth to the idea that our geography can affect our well-being? Or is it really true that wherever you go, there you are? They're kind of both true. I mean, you would have to be really ridiculously blind to insist that every place in the world is the same. And so a lot of us have these fantasies of how different our lives would be if, you know, if I moved to New York City or if I lived in Toronto or, you know, a beach town in the South or something. And it is genuinely true. Your life would be really different in a lot of ways. Um, And there are studies that show really huge geographic disparities in things like income levels or marriage rates or levels of well-being. So if you live in Hawaii, you're more likely to be happy than if you live in Kentucky or West Virginia. So there's definitely truth to this idea that our geography affects our lives and um, how happy we are. On the other hand, we don't always have ultimate control over where we live. Um, And even when we do, there will for certain be disappointing things about our town or things that make our place hard to live in. And so there's a point at which you need to learn to simply make the best of where you are. Um, And there's also this idea that, you know, no matter where you live, you're taking yourself with you. I always had this idea that, you know, every time I moved, I was kind of shedding this baggage and, you know, all the the friendships that hadn't quite developed right or, um, you know, the home improvement projects you didn't finish. You were leaving those behind and you were starting fresh. And that's an incredibly um, addictive idea, this idea of starting over. Um, but at a certain point, you have to realize you're those things come with you um, or they they start over in your new place. So the best thing that most of us can do is simply become settled and urban design um, mentioned a lot, which is that millennials are more likely than any other generation in the past to pick the city where they want to live and then find the job to get them there, which is totally different from how we think of people finding jobs. You know, you graduate from college and you just, you know, throw out an enormously wide net and you go wherever anyone will have you. Um, But now people are being a little more choosy about it. They want to end up in San Francisco or Austin, or they want to live in Raleigh and they will just target their search to those places or they'll move there and then get the job. But is this just a manifestation of the geographic cure? I mean, they they think that if they live in this cool place, their life would be fundamentally different. Yeah, I think so to a certain extent that, you know, we have this idea that we want to experience a certain kind of lifestyle and we see that that might be possible in this place that we haven't lived before. Um, And sometimes a place that we have lived before. I certainly meet a lot of people in my town, which is a college town, um, who moved here to go to college and just never left. They loved it that much. Um, But on the other hand, there's something valuable about um, this sense of paying attention to place, acknowledging that it is important in our lives and being thoughtful about where we live rather than just 
kind of randomly moving places. All right. So you talk about in the book that there's research about it. And I'm surprised that there was research about how we feel about where we live. Uh, You talk about how there's some people are movers and some people are stairs. What causes a person to establish roots in a community? And what does the research say about the differences between movers and stayers? So the thing that really interested me about moving and staying, um, as I looked into the research, I discovered this idea of place attachment, which is this concept of feeling really connected to a town or a city or the place that you live. Most of us have experienced that um, in some way. Maybe it's your hometown, um, or it could be the place that you live right now. But a lot of us identify with um, some place that feels really close to our hearts. I've seen it identified in the scientific literature as your heart home, um, which is kind of a uh, woo sort of way to describe it, but it really is an emotional feeling. It's um, a, a emotion tied with action. So when we feel place attached, um, not only are we more likely to stay living in a place longer, but we feel more satisfied while we're there. We want to be involved in the community. We want to know what's going on. We feel like the people who live in this place are our kind of people. They're like us or, you know, we feel socially connected and supported. So when you have all these factors in place, and you don't have to have all of them, but um, some of these factors, they make you feel place attached. And that makes you less likely to move overall. Um, There's studies that show some people are just stayers. According to the Pew Research Center, 37% of Americans still live in their hometown. When I read that statistic, I was shocked by it because um, I feel like in America now, there's um, a stigma to staying put that people think if you are upwardly mobile, you're also geographically mobile. You're moving around to get to college or to a new job. But there are advantages to being stable in one place. There are studies that show that um, especially adolescents who move a lot tend to have worse grades. They're more likely to experiment with drugs and alcohol. Um, They have fewer friends than teenagers who stay put. Um, And the ramifications can be kind of long lasting for children and teenagers who are introverts who move a lot. um, Even, you know, 30 years later, they show lower levels of well-being and higher levels of depression. Simply liking where you live can have a really important, uh, um, have some really important health benefits. There's a study of Japanese senior citizens that found that um, people who felt connected to their community and their neighborhood, who liked where they lived and knew people, um, tended to live um, 6% longer than people who didn't. So it can even increase your lifespan. Wow, that's amazing. So so does place attachment require that your city or town be amazingly awesome and hip like, say, Austin or San Francisco? Or could you live in Claremore, Oklahoma and still have place attachment? You can definitely live in Claremore, Oklahoma and be place attached. And that's kind of the funny thing about it is you probably know people who 
are really attached to, you know, their hometown or the place they live now. And you as an outsider are like, what? I do not understand <laughs> what's going on. Um, one of the experiences that first made me think about this was meeting a woman named Gertie Moore who lived in this tiny little holler in West Virginia. And she had lived there her whole life, you know, lived on the same street her whole life. And, um, you know, meeting her as part of a um, research for a magazine story I was writing, I was kind of dumbfounded <laughs> because her town was not a place I would ever live. You know, in a million years, I would never choose to live there. But for her, this was home. And home meant, you know, not only the geography of this place, but she was incredibly socially connected. She belonged to every club in town. She, you know, helped her neighbors. And even in a state that struggles with well-being levels, I think that sense of place attachment made her happy. You know, she was kind of at the center of the community and there's value in that. So a lot of how we develop place attachment is simply perception. Um, there's a great study that was really integral to my research called the Soul of the Community Study. It was a collaboration between the Knight Foundation and Gallup. And they surveyed 26 communities across the United States, communities of all different sizes. They talked to 26,000 people and asked them questions about, you know, how much they liked where they lived and what mattered to them and, and things like that. Um, and some of the cities that did really well in this study where people were really place attached were really surprising. Um, in the second year of the study, Grand Forks, North Dakota was was tied for number one out of these cities. And, you know, a lot of us do not have North Dakota on our radar as, you know, someplace we're desperate to move. But, you know, it doesn't really matter that objectively Grand Forks has, you know, fewer museums or fewer big sports arenas or whatever. The people who live there are happy with what they have and they feel good about it. And that increases their well-being. Does place attachment happen right away when you move to a place or does it take some time to feel attached to a location? So it usually takes time. Um, studies show that attachment peaks between about three and five years. Um, my goal, you know, working on this book is I wanted to speed that up. You know, I was new in Blacksburg and kind of didn't like it, didn't really feel comfortable. And I wanted to head off that feeling of, you know, wanting to just call it quits and move on somewhere else. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, accelerate the process of developing place attachment by doing these place attachment experiments, you know, love where you live experiments, doing things that have been shown in the literature to boost place attachment and kind of like doing them all at once in the course of a year. So I would feel better about where I live. Um, and so there are behaviors, there are things that you can do to feel better faster. But I think if you're new in a town, you have to assume that the first three to six months are just going to be chaos. That's like survival skill sort of level, you know, where you're finding your way around, you're trying to figure out where the tortillas are in the grocery store. And it's really hard to even lift your head. Um, but once you've been there for a while, you can work on loving the place you are. All right, well, let's talk about some of those things you did in your experiment. You start off talking about walking more in your community. So how does walking more and driving less foster place attachment? At a certain level, it's just um, 
the really basic sense that walking tends to make us happier, especially when you compare it to commuting by car. There are studies that show that um, you know, commuting, whether by car or by subway, can be more stressful than being in like a military operation. You know, it's incredibly stressful. So, you know, part of being happy in your town is simply being happy and walking or biking is something that does that for you. But there's also a process, especially when you're new, of developing a mental map, um, you know, sort of a sense of where things are in your town and how to get from point A to point B. Uh, there's a study that shows um, that studied children and children who, you know, never got out of the car, who had what's called windshield perspective. Um, when they were asked to draw maps of their neighborhoods, they drew less detailed maps and less accurate maps than kids who spent a lot of time on bike or on foot. So when we're biking or walking, we, we're going at a slow enough pace a human pace, um, that not only do we have a better ability to, to develop these mental maps to kind of suss out how your neighborhood streets all connect to each other, but you're more likely to have interactions um, or experiences that help you, um, I call it putting pins in your map of your place, you know, like little happy experiences that make you feel more comfortable there. And it can be anything from like, saying hi to a neighbor who's out on his porch to learning the name of the dog up the block or smelling your neighbor's roses. It can be a sensory experience that helps you feel immersed in your town um, or your city. And that can be really helpful to helping us feel more at home. So what can people do? I mean, I'm sure there's people who are listening that they, they're like, that sounds great, but my city is completely unwalkable. It's made for cars. What can these people do to um, take advantage of the walking benefit of place attachment? So there's a guy I talked to for the book named Matt Tomasulo. He lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. And when he moved there, he was just um, coming home from a study abroad in Europe where everyone walked all the time or they biked. I think he was in Copenhagen. He moved to Raleigh and was really irritated by this fact that like no one was on the streets. He lived downtown and no one walked at all. Um, and people have this perception that, you know, it was just too far to go anywhere. So he developed this project. He called it Walk Raleigh, where he made these signs that just pointed out that um, it was only like a 10 minute walk to the grocery store or a five minute walk to get to, you know, this statue or um, the bell tower at NC state or something like that. And he went out, um, you know, no permission for this, like nothing was permitted, but he went out in the middle of the night with some friends and, you know, zip tied them to street signs in an effort to make people start walking more. Um, and it totally worked. Um, you know, people would see the signs and it's just something, something kind of clicks like, Oh, that's not that far. I can walk. Um, it became really popular in Raleigh. He, it spread to other parts of the city and he eventually developed it into a website called Walk Your City where anyone can go and you know put up signs encouraging to walk, encouraging others to walk. Um, so I asked him this question, you know, what if you live in a town, you know, where there's not a walking infrastructure or where no one walks or doesn't feel safe? Um, and 
you know, you can't go crazy with it, um, especially if you're worried it's not safe. But he was kind of like, walk anyway. You know, the thing that makes a place walkable is when people just start walking. Um, you can sort of be a trailblazer in your neighborhood and and just get out there, um, even, you know, in little doses. Maybe it's not your neighborhood, but maybe it's the local park or maybe it's downtown. Or, you know, someplace in your town where you can get outside and experience life on foot. I love that idea. I was tempted to make some signs. I mean, the library from my house isn't that far. I think it's like 20, like a 20 minute walk, but I always drive to it because I'm just, it's out of laziness and habit. Right. It's totally habit, you know, that we just, you know, we just get in the car because it's hot or it might rain or, you know, whatever. Um, so it's kind of like you have to get over that initial inertia against doing it. And honestly, you're you're probably not going to do it all the time. I recommend the book, you know, just making a swap, like, you know, one trip that you would normally make by car, try making it by foot or, you know, go on a walk in your neighborhood for exercise or something. And when you start like having the good experiences, um, you you'll enjoy it more. Um I've, I've lived in my neighborhood now for four years and it was seriously like a month ago that someone pointed out that like a half mile from my house is this beautiful path through the woods, like this hiking trail that I never knew was there. But, you know, those are the kinds of things that make people love their neighborhood is, you know, those, those hidden paths that you explore. That is a cool process. So another activity you encourage or you experimented with in your loving the place you are um, experiment is uh, buying local. So how can buying local create place attachment? So what I love about buying local is that it helps you and it helps your town. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies um, that when we buy local, more money stays locally, um, you know, feeds local taxes, stays um, among local people than uh, would when we shop at big box stores, it's actually, you know, about three times as much money stays local. It's called the local multiplier effect. So part of loving your town is doing what's good for your town. Um, and shopping local definitely is. There's a total social and psychological benefit to buying local as well. Um, I have always been you know, an Amazon and Target devotee. <laughs> that is just where I bought my stuff. But um, the thing that makes Target and Amazon so efficient, you know, that it's the same everywhere uh, and it's so easily accessible, you know, especially Amazon, you just do it from your couch. You don't have to leave the house um, is exactly the thing that makes it bad for towns. Um, it takes away money from your town and it's completely non-social. So I made an effort to try and buy local, which was hard for me. And in most towns, it's it can be hard to find, you know, necessities and things like that. Um, but one thing I did recently was uh, transfer all my prescriptions to a locally owned pharmacy that's on the main street in my town. You know, they were like at Target and the grocery store. And this new pharmacy opened up and I'm like, okay, you know, like this is my thing. I have to transfer my prescriptions. And I did. Um, and this pharmacist is so awesome. <laughs> like 
He reminds me of Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec, just like so happy for your business, so happy to talk to you, willing to bend over backwards to get you what you need. Um, they do delivery, which is awesome for me. Um, but there's also just kind of a relationship there. Um, I know, you know, I know Jeremy my name. He knows me by name. He knows the kind of stuff I, you know, I need. And we've talked. Um, those are the kinds of relationships that a lot of us don't have anymore. But when you have some of those, um, you know, loose tie kind of relationships, they make you feel um, more at home where you live. And that's a great thing. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time. Uh, to, to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out 
the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. I love that idea too. And something you suggest in your book, you you argue that if you continue to buy your stables at Target or some big chain grocery store, you suggest to you suggest people to at least spend fifty dollars a month at a locally owned store or shop. Right. There's um there's this idea. It's called the three fifty project, and um you know you're not going to spend everything at a locally locally owned store. You're definitely going to keep shopping at Target and Amazon. I know I do. But if you can just transfer some of that money, you know, aim to spend $50 at three local stores every month. Um, even just that small amount can make a difference. I recommend that people think of one thing that they will always buy local. And maybe that's eating at a restaurant or, you know, I'll always buy toys from this locally owned toy store or books from the independent bookstore in my town and just commit to that. And that's that's your thing. And you always shop local for that. Yeah. I love that idea. Cause it's something we do in our family, you know, for Christmas presents, my wife and I, we buy our toys at this locally owned store, which is nice. It's a, it's a pleasant experience. Right. And the people who work in those stores, they, they value it. They know you. Um, it's just a different experience than shopping at Target. So you talk about neighborliness. I think everyone kind of bemoans the fact that being neighborly is declined. We're not as neighborly, but you say we're actually still neighborly, but the definition of neighborly has changed. So how has that definition changed from say like the 1950s? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, neighbors were fairly likely to socialize with each other. You know, once a week or once a month, you'd have the bunko group or the poker night or the neighborhood potluck or something like that. Now being neighborly mostly involves leaving other people alone. <laughs> you know, like you're a great neighbor if your dog doesn't poop in my yard or you're a great neighbor if, um, you know, you deliver the mail that got misdelivered to your house and you don't throw parties late at night. So we tend to think of, you know, being neighborly as simply keeping yourself to yourself, minding your own business. And there's something to be said for that. Um, but on the other hand, I love the old-fashioned idea of neighborliness, um, which is that you get to know your neighbors by name, you trust them, you maybe ask them to, you know, house at your cats while you're gone, um, you socialize with them on a small level, and you actually know them. And, and what does the research say about communities that have a strong sense of neighborliness? I and mean, what are the benefits that come with that for the community as a whole? 
On an individual level, um, neighborliness has been shown to really uh, have an important health benefit. Um, there's a study from the University of Michigan that showed that uh, people who know their neighbors, you know, who know their first names, who trust them, who have a relationship with them, are 60, 67% less likely to have heart attacks and 48% likely less likely to have a stroke, which is a, an enormous uh, a kind of stunning study there. Um, but for communities as a whole, crime tends to go down when neighbors know each other. Um, and, you know, there's a great quote from uh, someone at Harvard who said, if you had to choose between 10% more cops on the beat or 10% more citizens knowing their neighbors' first names, the latter is the better crime prevention strategy. So this is something that communities themselves are investing in, you know, developing uh, neighborhood councils or one uh, one program I talked about was from Surprise, Arizona. They have a block party trailer where they have this trailer just stocked with everything that you need to throw a good block party. And they'll throw in, you know, a $100 gift certificate to the grocery store so you can get food and party supplies. And they want people to get out in the street and talk to each other. When you have those relationships, um, it tends to ward off ill feeling. It makes people happier. It helps neighbors solve problems before they escalate. Um, and it makes a community feel better. Um, there's also something called neighborhood social cohesion. And the idea is that a cohesive neighborhood where people know each other and trust each other can also work together to solve its own problems. And this is really effective, especially in communities that are struggling. But even in, you know, your average middle class communities, sometimes neighbors have have issues. One person that I talked to for the book, and I think you've had him on your podcast, Mark Dunkelman, told me this um, story. He moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and their street got ripped up for you know some work and it didn't get repaved or didn't get repaved properly. And he took the initiative to go around to all the neighbors. They all called the city council people, signed petitions, and got the, got the repaving done. So you know, that's something that ordinary citizens can do, but they have more power when they band together and make it happen. And the thing that Mark said about it is having done that, he was like the mayor of the street. People loved him. Um, so there's a happiness benefit too. The other experiment you did was you, to do something fun in your community, which sounds great, but what if your community doesn't have anything fun to do? What if it's just strip malls and nothing else? So that's... <laughs> That was my town, or at least that's what I thought my town was. You know, I moved here from Austin, which is a big city, totally happening. People love living there. And I moved to Blacksburg, Virginia, which is a town of about 43,000. And we have a university here, but, you know, it was a lot slower. And that was one of the things that bugged me when I moved here is like, what do people do for fun? The thing that I realized researching the book is that basically every community has fun stuff to do. But we don't always pay attention to the fun stuff our town has to offer because it's not our fun stuff. It's not the stuff that we wanted. You know, maybe we want a big art museum and what our town has is some bars. <laughs> or we wanted Disneyland and our town has a historic plantation. Um, so we tend to sort of ignore 
the the things that our town is good at. Um, but a lot of how we feel about our town is perception. We create our cities with how we think about them. One of the places I went to as I researched the book was Sierra Vista, Arizona, um, who was doing a rebranding project. And it opened my eyes because I talked to, you know, one person who was like, oh, Sierra Vista is the best place. There's so much to do. I love it here. And then 20 minutes later, I would talk to someone who'd be like, Sierra Vista is a whole, I can't wait to leave. Um, and it made me realize that towns are not the same for everyone. You know, we all sort of live in a different city based on how we think about it. So I have two ideas about this fun stuff. You know, first, if you want to stop seeing your town as this drag, you know, a boring place to live where there's nothing going on, you have to figure out what your town is good at, um, you know, and and accept those things, even if they're not the things that you would prefer. So you do that by asking around, you read the local newspaper, you find the online event listings, and you start showing up for stuff that's going on. Um, I write in the book about <clears throat> trying to pay more attention to what my town was good at by, you know, starting to attend hokey football games. And I probably should not admit this on the Art of Manliness podcast, but I'm not that into football. Um, but it was something that I did just to be part of the town, you know, to experience what people in the town got excited about. Um, my second thought is that if your town isn't amazingly entertaining and interesting, there's nothing that says that you can't make it amazing. A lot of us in our cities sit back and we wait for stuff to come to us. You know, we wait for entertainment to descend from on high. But one of the things I love right now is this idea of placemaking, um, which is a concept that the average citizen can shape their place for the better um, by you know, opening a pop-up store or starting a festival in the town. I read about people in Fargo, North Dakota, who started something called the Hammock Initiative. And what it was literally was people gathering at a park and lying in their hammocks. But, you know, they built a website for it. They invited the press and it became a thing, like an event that was going on. So, in the same way that cities can develop entrepreneurial ecosystems where they nurture and invite entrepreneurs to start new things, um, cities can also become uh, placemaking ecosystems where they encourage community initiatives, you know, parklets or benches or murals or anything that makes the town a cooler, better place to live and more fun. One of the ideas that you suggested and I started doing it's you know, pretty much every city probably has an Instagram account around the city where they're talking about the events that are going on or just things about your city. And I've been following a lot of Tulsa Instagram accounts. It's been fun. I've actually discovered some cool events. I had no idea that was going on that I would have known um, that was going on, you know, going on if I weren't following these accounts. Right. I love that. You know, there are exactly social media accounts, Twitter, there are blogs, almost every city in the world has online event listings. And one of the benefits of that too, is you connect with other people who are really in love with where they live. And when you're hanging out with people who are boosters for your town, who are really enthusiastic about it, that, that attitude tends to rub off on you. All right. I love that. So another part of your experiment was you got out into nature more. How does 
getting out into nature. And I guess this kind of ties in with walking too, but how does that develop place attachment in us? I love uh, encouraging people to get out in nature because it's sort of the purest manifest manifestation of place. You know, it is literally your place without all the houses and the buildings. It's just this sensory experience. It's full of sounds and smells and sights. So experiencing nature can be a really powerful, positive way to feel connected to where you live. Studies have shown that nature is almost primal in the way it affects our bodies. Scientists call time spent in green spaces vitamin G because it's so effective at things like reducing your rates of cardiovascular disease or pain or migraines or lowering your blood pressure. Um, It definitely lowers stress levels. And it also helps neighbors form closer community ties. I found one study that showed that neighbors who live near parks are um, more willing to help each other out and trust each other than people who live farther away from parks. So when we talk about nature, it doesn't have to be like the primeval forest or something. It can just be, you know, your local green belt or a park or someplace, you know, the High Line in New York City, someplace that helps you experience um, some something a little green, something outside the normal town setting. Um, and the interesting part is that the kind of nature we gravitate toward can feel really personal. You know, everyone has their thing. This is kind of the thing that you sit around and talk about with your friends when you're kids. You know, if you could live anywhere, would you live in the mountains or on the beach? Um, you know, some of that is evolutionary biology. We tend to prefer places where we have a vantage point and a view that includes water. You know, so you imagine a hunter on the savanna trying to get a bead on a lion without being killed himself. And somehow that has transferred to our preference for, you know, flat park-like places with some trees and some water, but where we can still see where we're going. Um, And our preferences in nature also have a lot to do with where we're from, you know, where we grew up. There's uh, a study by some Swedish environmental psychologists that found that um, 73, 73% of study participants who grew up near the coast settled near the coast as adults. And 63% of people who grew up near a forest settled near a forest as adult, as adults. So we, we tend to gravitate towards, you know, things we've experienced in one way or another. Um, but even so, all levels of nature can, you know, be positive. So we find the the aspect of nature that speaks to us. Um, and it can be really important in our sense of place. Um, one aspect of place attachment is called place dependence. And it's this idea that when we depend on certain places to do the things we love, we love that place. So if you're a skier, you might develop a sense of place dependence dependence for the mountains. Or if you kayak, you develop a sense of place of dependence for the river near your house. And that can, those can be activities that make you fall in love with where you live. Well, Melody, we've talked about a lot of great ideas. There's more we could talk about, but I'm curious, what were the results of your place attachment experiment? Did you learn to love Blacksburg? So I did. And I was a little skeptical of the results at first. Um, I started noticing it because I was traveling to research the book and I'd come back to Blacksburg and I would just have this feeling of, 
oh, I'm home. You know, I'm, I miss that. I miss those mountains or I miss these trees. Um, and I would, you know, I would ride my bike around town and I'd be like, that's, that's beautiful. Look at the sky today. I started having these experiences where I just sort of noticed where I was and I loved it. And I kind of worried that I was, you know, I was tampering with the evidence, you know, I was researching this and writing a book about it. Of course, it is in my best interest if I fall deeply in love with Blacksburg. But the thing is, you know, my whole study, you know, trying to do things that build place attachment was really like this long extended exercise in positive thinking. And when you are determined to see good in your town and feel part of the community, you do, you do after a while. I, I really do feel like Blacksburg is home and we've, my, my family has rented a house here ever since we moved here. And we finally got a realtor and started house hunting because we were like, okay, this is it. We are, we are committed. Um, and I really can't imagine living anywhere else right now, which is not to say that I will never move. Um, you know, jobs happen elsewhere. Families sometimes draw you away. So, you know, being place attached or loving where you live doesn't mean that you have to stay there forever. It just means that while you there, while you're there, you just love it really hard, <laughs> and you you make it your own um, and you just live it up for the time that you're there. And if you leave, you can do it in the next town too. All right. I love that. So I'm not sure if you like these types of questions about to ask, because I'm sure you just say, do all the things. But if there's one thing that you'd recommend that our listeners could start doing today, if they want to start this experiment, what's the one thing that would probably provide the most immediate results in learning to love the place you are? I'm going to say the really um, basic one and say, Go meet your neighbors. A lot of us don't know our neighbors. You know, 28% of us don't even know their names. And neighbors, in, in all the research that I looked at, n- knowing your neighbors can be one of the most powerful things for helping you be healthy, helping you feel connected, helping you feel happy in your community. So, seriously, just like, you know, take banana bread <laughs> to your neighbors or, invite them over for ice cream or, you know, just say hi. It will make you feel better about your town. That's fantastic. Well, Melody, where can people learn more about your book? I have a website, which is my name, MelodyWarnick.com, where you can find tons more info about the book. There are links to buy it. And, you know, there's a book club guide and a blog and all kinds of good stuff. So that's a great place to start. Melody Warnick, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. I appreciated it. My guest today was Melody Warnick. She's the author of the book, This Is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live. It's available on amazon.com. Go check it out. It's a fantastic book. Um, If you want to learn more information about the book, you can go to her website, melodywarnick.com. Also check out the show notes at aom.is slash place for uh, links to resources so you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us out a lot. Thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay 
Manly. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.